Well, good morning to you at eight minutes after five o'clock on this Saturday morning. Orion Samuelson checking in for our weekly get-together, talking about the most basic industry on the planet, providing food, and now we're providing fuel, and we're providing cotton for clothes, all of those things coming from the agricultural community here in the United States. So thank you for joining us for our weekly get-together. And right now I'm looking at my rain gauge and uh, after midnight, no rain in Huntley, Illinois. Temperature, though, is 31 degrees on my thermometer on the backyard patio. So it's a chilly morning, and uh, but at least it's a dry morning. And winter did arrive for a a lot of people in the upper Midwest this week. Uh, I've uh, had photographs of four to five inches of snow on the ground in the Dakotas and in northern Minnesota, for example. And we've been hearing from a lot of listeners in that part of the Midwest crop production areas who they're saying winter is here, and indeed it did arrive. Something that is uh, coming next week, but it's coming virtually. That's the National FFA Convention. There will not be thousands of blue-jacketed FFA members uh, in the streets of Indianapolis because the FFA convention will be virtual. Also got the word this week that the American Farm Bureau Convention scheduled for San Diego, California in January of next year will be virtual. It will not be happening, so those Farm Bureau members that had planned to have some time in the uh, San Diego area won't be doing it because the convention will be virtual. A lot of changes in this year of the summer of what I'm calling summer of postponements and cancellations, state fairs, county fairs, a lot of other activity. The uh, Farm Progress Show and uh, Husker Harvest Days and a lot of activity that I hope we get back on the calendar in reality next year as we move into the year of 2021. But thank you for joining us, and uh, we're going to uh, answer some questions that we get every year at Halloween time. Questions like, are pumpkins fruit or vegetable? And are pumpkins... you name it, we get a lot of questions. So Jim Fussell will try to answer those questions for you when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. We are coming to the end of the gardening season and the growing season, but there's still a lot of activity to cover, and we've got about 10 pounds of it to put in a 5-pound can this morning. Jim <laughs> Fazell, good morning to you, and I know we're going to talk pumpkins because the questions that we get every year are coming in this year, but you want to talk about something else first, so go well, ahead. Yeah, real real quickly, you know, we talked about repairing the lawn a couple of weeks ago, and I know a lot of people put it off because it was hot and dry. It's no longer hot, and it's no longer dry. In fact, we've got quite a bit of moisture, so this is about the last chance you're going to get 
to uh, scratch up the dead areas in your lawn and to sow some seed, that 50-50 Kentucky bluegrass turf-type perennial rye. I don't think you're going to need to get any water on it to get it to a quick start, but you might want to cover it with straw or a mat. Uh, and that, that there is still time for it to grow if we have a mild fall. If it doesn't, it will survive the winter as seed, even if it doesn't come up. The long-range forecast suggests that we're going to get some more warm weather and a little bit of dry weather. So it's time to get done with some of those chores before things get uh, winter-like. Now, Halloween means pumpkins, or pumpkins if you prefer it. Roadside stands, all the normal outlets, places like the community pumpkin patches, and even the chains are loaded with pumpkins right now. Uh, The first question that we get is, are these fruits or are they vegetables? Well, the answer is yes. They're both. Botanically... (laughs) But botanically, this is the fruit of the vine. Uh, it ha- has a flower, and it develops into a fruit. Now, that's botanical. Culinary definitions call this a vegetable because it's savory, and it's used as vegetable, not as a fruit. So you have both. They're fruits and vegetables. You can argue one side or the other as long as you want, but the answer is it's both of them. Another question, are they really pumpkins or are they squash? Uh, people say, well, you know, I've got squash, but the pumpkins, that's different, isn't it? They're both vine crops, and vines include things like the cucumbers, muskmelons, and watermelons, and so forth. Uh, but the rest of these are squashes. Now, there are two kinds of squashes. There's summer squash and winter squash. The summer squashes are harvest immature, harvested immature. That means that they're used fresh out of the garden. You don't store them. Uh, things like zucchini, patty pan, uh, straight or crooked neck yellow squash, acorn squash. Now, acorn squash is a strange individual because we generally use that as uh, summer squash, use it immediately, but it is a winter squash as well, and it can be stored. Uh, the standard orange pumpkins are also squash. We call them pumpkins, but they are squash. And those are things like the New England pie pumpkin, which is the small one that we use. It'll make a pie. One pumpkin makes a pie. Uh, jack-o'-lanterns, which are maybe uh, uh, 8 or 15 pounds. And some of the bigger jack-o'-lanterns are Kentucky or Connecticut field pumpkins or Howden field pumpkins. And these go up to about 25 pounds. And we have a lot of exotic pumpkins. I know there's one that looks like Cinderella's um, uh, carriage that that uh, is very popular right now. Then we get to the winter squashes. Uh, these are harvested when they're mature. And it, once, if you harvest them correctly, they'll keep until spring. So you can have squash all winter and almost until the new crop comes in later uh, in spring the next year. Um, don't be afraid to get a few because you can store them. Now, when you buy these, you want to check that they are properly hardened off. That means that if you try to scratch them with your thumbnail, you're going to find that the skin is very hard and tough. If you buy these, uh, be sure that you, if you don't use things like the, the uh, uh, acorn squash right away, keep them in a cool, dry place. If they're in a moist place or a warm place, they're going to deteriorate. But things like butternut squash, acorn, the Hubbard squashes, which are great big things. Incidentally, they make excellent pumpkin pie. And the painting pumpkins, the ones that are white. Also within this category are the commercial pumpkins, which are brown, not orange. They look like great big uh, footballs out in the field. And uh, they have names like uh, buckskin, which kind of describes what they look like. And also within this category are the giant pumpkins. These are the ones that you see in the biggest pumpkin contests. Now, here we have a, a quandary. If they're not completely ripe, they're not pumpkins. So when they have the pumpkin contest, if you have one that's not turned yellow yet, 
you're going to have to enter this in the squash category if they're green. If they turn yellow, you can enter them in the pumpkin category. Now, there are a bunch of varieties, and you'll see these in the catalogs as Big Macs or Atlantic Giant. Uh, these are ones that have been traditionally grown this way. Actually, the people that grow these for the contests um, share seeds with one another sometimes, or they will pollinate some plants on their own that know that they know will uh, produce great big big pumpkins, and they'll get seed out of that, and they'll use those the following year. Now, incidentally, the pumpkin, giant pumpkin winner here in Illinois was from down in DeWitt County, Henry Bartimus. His pumpkin weighed 1,673 pounds. That's a lot of pumpkin, better than three-quarters of a ton. Uh, the heaviest pumpkin ever was grown in Belgium, not in the United States. Uh, it was in, in uh, 2016, and it weighed 2,600 pounds, ton and a quarter. Um, the largest pumpkin producers... In the United States, incidentally, we can take credit for that here in Illinois because Morton, Illinois, is the world pumpkin center. And here in Illinois, we grow twice as many pumpkins as any other top-producing states here in the United States, including places like California or Pennsylvania. Now, for using pumpkins, uh, carving pumpkins, the people, people type, which are the little pumpkins, the New England pie pumpkins, do make wonderful pies, and they can be carved out for a little little uh, jack-o'-lanterns uh you need to uh, you can paint them too uh, some people paint these now if you paint them and you're careful with them you can peel all that skin off when you use them and make a pie too now one other question or actually that answers our question about them be, them being squash or pumpkins uh they're one or the other depending on what you call them the last question i've been getting is where did the name jack-o'-lantern come from well, these originated from an Irish myth about a blacksmith, uh, Irish myth of a blacksmith by the name of Stingy Jack. He was said to have fooled the devil several times, trying to trick him into getting himself the last drink at the pub. Well, you know Irish tradition, and and part of my family comes from Ireland, so I I know that tradition. Uh, the last time uh, he tricked the devil into promising not to take a soul when he died. Well, Jack died, but the devil wouldn't let him. In, in, into hell because he promised he wouldn't do that. But because of his dealings with the dark powers and the love of strong liquor, Jack wasn't allowed into heaven either. So the devil gave Jack a burning coal to light his way and told him he's going to have to wander forever out in the dark. Uh, the coal was eventually, he, he got tired of carrying it with a pair of, of tongs, so he carved out a cabbage root, and he's roamed the earth ever since with that thing, and it's been emitting its eerie green light. Well, the Irish begin to call this ghostly figure the Jack with the Lantern, or okay. Jack Lantern. <laughs> so in Ireland, people make lanterns from turnips and uh, put them in their windows to scare away stingy Jack. And uh, our ancestors that came from the old country brought the tr tradition here, but they found out that the pumpkins make one heck of a lot better Jack o' Lantern than did the cabbages or the turnips. Uh, one last thing. This is the last chance this week you're going to get to go to the community farmer's markets and the roadside stands. Most close after Halloween. So you need to do things like pick up the winter squash if you're going to save those, onions and potatoes and so forth, and they do have them in bulk. There are some tomatoes and peppers out there which you can, can get and use them for processing. Uh, in the fall, the cabbages and the Brussels sprouts and cauliflower are excellent. They have those, too. And they also, at the garden centers and community, uh, uh, roadside stands, do have things like garden supplies, straw, straw rose cones, bird seed. Even have some tools, and they certainly have garden books. 
Well, it's about that. About that. That's about enough for this week. But next week we're going to finish up the garden year, and we'll call it quits for 2020. Yeah, and let me mention the fact that uh, so many of the farmers markets uh, do celebrate Halloween with many different colorful activities. I know Tom's out here uh, on Algonquin Road. I know the Goberts uh, who are south of where I live. And uh, there's a lot of activity going on, so I do hope that uh, we'll wrap up the farmer's market season and the Halloween season in good style with uh, a lot of fun. But remember, wear a mask, wash your hands, and try not to get too close to people so but it's been a good growing season and uh, so we look forward to doing what you suggest and that is making plans for next year it's time to start isn't it it is definitely time to start uh the garden season never ends and uh, it just moves indoors temporarily here in this part of the country while we enjoy looking at pictures and so forth and making plans for the next year and that's the word from Jim Fazell and the word from the jack-o'-lanterns at the farmer's market. So have a good week, and we'll talk to you next week, Jim. Okay, Orion, look forward to it. That's Jim Fazell, our specialist in ornamental horticulture here on the Saturday Morning Show. Twenty-five and a half minutes after five o'clock, and yes, we can use agricultural products for things besides feeding cattle and hogs and poultry. As you just heard from the folks at Whiskey Acres, they turn corn into something else, but it's doggone good, so... Yesterday, an interesting report issued by the Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Trade Representative Office, a summary of agricultural trade between the United States and China, and how well are we doing on fulfilling the agreement signed in January, the Phase 1 China-U.S. Trade Agreement. So anyway, yesterday we got this report from the trade office and from USDA that uh, covered the progress made to date in implementing the agricultural provisions in the U.S.-China Phase 1 Economic and Trade Agreement, which is, according to the report, delivering some historic results for American agriculture. So some of the facts from that report. Since the agreement entered into force, the U.S. and China have addressed a multitude of structural barriers in China that had been impeding the exports of U.S. food and agricultural products, and uh, China to date has implemented at least 50 of the 57 technical commitments under the Phase 1 agreement. These structural changes benefiting American farmers for decades to come. China also has substantially ramped up its purchases of U.S. agricultural products. And to date, China has purchased over $23 billion in agricultural products, and that's about 71% of its target under the Phase 1 agreement. 
Some of the highlights of that report that came across my desk yesterday. Corn. Outstanding sales of U.S. corn to China are at an all-time high of 8.7 million tons. Soybean sales for marketing year 2021 are off to the strongest start in history, with outstanding sales to China double the levels of sales back in 2017. Sorghum. U.S. exports of sorghum to China from January to August of this year totaled $617 million. That's up from $561 million for the same period in 2017. And pork. U.S. pork exports to China hit an all-time record in just the first five months of 2020. And then beef, U.S. beef and beef product exports to China through August 2020, already more than triple the total for 2017. In addition to these products, the USDA expects 2020 sales to China to hit record or near record levels for numerous other U.S. agricultural products, including pet food, alfalfa hay, we ship a lot of hay to China, pecans, peanuts, and prepared foods. So apparently uh, we are at least near the levels agreed upon back in January when the uh, Phase 1 agreement with China was signed. The U.S. Trade Representative and USDA continue to work closely with the Chinese government to ensure that the Phase 1 agreement is fully and properly implemented so that the access for U.S. food and agriculture products will come close to meeting the numbers agreed on in that uh, agreement that was signed back in January. So there's more to talk about in trade of agricultural products, but right now let's take a break and check the news here on 720 WGN. It's 24 minutes before 6 o'clock on this Saturday morning. Let me take just a moment to say thank you to WGN and to you for the interesting, fun, and memorable notes I'm getting about the past 60 years of my covering the agricultural and agribusiness community here on WGN Radio. It's been fun uh, listening to the uh, announcements that uh, WGN has put together to talk about some highlights in my career that frankly uh, happened so long ago I'd forgotten that yes I did things on the air that covered this situation or that situation and thank you to the many of you who have called the special telephone line uh, established by Gary Lang in McHenry and uh, I'm not going to have the time to answer all of them individually, but I collectively will say thank you for listening and thank you for your comments and memories on 
places we have been that we met and had conversation, and of course the big agricultural events around the world that I've had the opportunity to enjoy during the 60 years I've been part of the WGN family. So thanks to WGN and thanks to you for all of that. And uh, coming up, uh, we're going to talk markets. Uh, Mike Pearson uh, will be checking in with market activity and uh, as a, a special guest. But right now, it's time to say welcome to Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, and this week, talking about a new era for the National FFA. I'm thinking about Dorothy. Dorothy who? There's no place like home. That Dorothy. Oh, the one with the shoes. And all she wanted was to get back home. Home is a special place. And 1-800-GOT-JUNK makes it even more special. By getting rid of what doesn't belong? By getting rid of what doesn't belong. We love what we do. Let us do it for you. We'll give you back your big, open, magical home. Because that's what you get when the junk is gone. Call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Or visit 1-800-GOT-JUNK.COM. The 93rd Annual Convention of the National FFA Organization will be held next week in Indianapolis. But my, what a different convention it's going to be, because it will be virtual. Indianapolis will not be overrun by thousands of blue-jacketed FFA members, because most of them will be watching the convention on TV sets in the classroom, or in their living room. And it really isn't the first time that FFA has had to adapt to change. Because at one time, FFA did not allow lady members. Farming was done by boys and men. Also at one time, agricultural education was only taught in rural high schools. It was not taught in city schools. But that, too, has changed. Since being in Chicago the past six decades, I've watched the development of the Chicago High School for Agricultural Sciences to give city kids an opportunity to learn about careers in agriculture and the work to be done on farms and ranches as well as in agribusiness. Now, that is being taught to city kids, and they are doing very well in finding new opportunities for finding unemployment in rural communities as well as in agribusiness. We wish the FFA members success in holding a different kind of convention. We will be sharing it with you on our agricultural coverage, and you'll be able to watch it on RFD-TV and FFA convention television sets. And we also wish the FFA, as it has always adapted to change in doing new things in farming and ranching. I will miss being there. And a lot of you FFA members will miss being there, but just mark it down as a new experience and one that is history-making. So be safe, be well. My thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of the Nexstar Media Group at 19 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show. 
31 degrees on my backyard thermometer in Huntley, Illinois, but no rain overnight since midnight in my rain gauge. I thought I heard it raining a few times, but I guess it was all in my imagination. But uh, harvest will probably be slowed a little bit. Combines will be parked for a day or two because too much moisture at the moment, but uh, harvest has been moving right along and we're going to uh, talk about the progress of harvest and the impact on crops when we continue with Mike Pearson who stops by here on the Saturday morning show. Well, market gyrations continue as we work our way through the harvest season to help us understand them. We are joined this week by Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Garrett, you're a farmer up there in northern Illinois. How are things looking in your neck of the woods? Uh, we just finished up with bean harvest here last week, and I think most people are, are done with beans for the most part. Uh, bean yields were about average. Um, you know, the, the later season beans did a lot better than the early season beans. Um, but we're right uh, about a bushel or two above our APH. Uh, nothing really to write home about, but um, we're, we're respectable. Um, now we're starting to get into corn harvest. I, I think we, we hear a lot of the same stories, especially in eastern Iowa. Um, you know, the lack of rain in, in, in August kind of coming back and, and rearing its ugly head. Um, harvest has been a little bit more enjoyable this fall because it's been drier. <laughs> uh, last year it was so wet that uh, it, it wasn't very much fun. But uh, corn yields right now are running about 10 to 15 bushel less than they were this point last year in this neck of the woods. And, and that was largely because of uh, the lack of moisture that we had at the end of the season. Gotcha. Yeah, that dryness in August certainly pinched yields for a lot of producers. And demand has continued to be strong. This week we saw export sales reported by the USDA of over $1.8 million metric tons. Garrett, when is the world going to stop buying corn or where do you think this thing heads as we work through the remainder of 2020? Well, you know, we, we've had the headlines this week that, that the inflation in Brazil, they're going to remove their tariffs. I think it's I think it's a headline uh, for at this point. Um, economically, it doesn't the, the, the imports really don't work. Um, if they are going to import corn or soybeans, they are going to come from the U.S., but right now, uh, the economics don't work. But um, for the near term, we're still even with the higher with the board rally. Uh, we're still the cheapest corn in the world. Uh, Brazil isn't really exporting much. Argentina's a little bit uh, cheaper than us, but uh, um, their farmers aren't really moving a whole heck, a whole heck of a lot of grain uh, because of the, the depreciating uh, currency there. But uh, you know at the, the the market's keeping up you know the demand is keeping up with the higher prices and 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 we're you know this week's export sales you know we're a typical buyer of japan with four hundred thousand. then we had china come in for another four hundred thousand, and that puts their total commitments up to about 10 to 10 4 million metric tons so um we're not you know we're we're not running away from anything um you know the market's been fairly um you know it's been it's it's been fairly uh um you know, manageable. I mean, this is a demand-led rally. I mean, there's still some underlying questions about supply, obviously, but uh, this is a demand rally. And it is a demand rally, given that's the fact for growers that are making some sales here as we roll through harvest. They're selling right off the combine, capturing this tighter basis in a lot of places throughout the Midwest. I've been asked by a lot of folks, should I look to reown this on the board, perhaps a spring contract for the corn? What do you think, Garrett? Is it worth it? 
there's a there's a point that's going to be worth it because I think the South American weather is going to be important it's more so in beans than in corn uh, at this point. But um, you know, I think everybody's been waiting for a dip to buy, and, and the a counter seasonal rally all through harvest hasn't really given you that much of an opportunity in, in corn or beans. You know, and the one thing that's interesting we looked up, you know, since August first. Uh, this rally since 1974 is the largest percent-based rally in corn uh, on record. Uh, I mean, even more than 2010. We're, we're a few cents uh, less than, than 2010 on the rally, but on a percent basis, this is, this is the largest rally on record. I want to talk soybeans. Can beans make it to 11 before the end of 2020? What do you think? We're close. I mean, I'm really surprised that we haven't, you know, we're struggling. I mean, I think the farmer is selling at 1080 levels, but I think we're close enough that um, I'd be really surprised if we don't take a crack at it. Um, You know, I think the the dynamics have shifted in the products. Um, You know, we started off the year with a a tighter soybean oil supply. Um, With the situation that's going in Argentina, that's led to a meal rally. Uh, meal rallies are, are technically more favorable. We've seen a strong rally in soybean crush margins, um, and that's that's going to help the soybean market. But right now, um, you know, I think you know the market's still trying to get the farmer to move beans. The the, the spreads are inverted, basis is firm. It's just a factor of this huge export book and trying to get beans to the market right now. And at what levels? Um, we know in the next two weeks when harvest wraps up, it's going to be more difficult for, for, for the end users to originate uh, beans. So um, basis and spreads, we could see a little bit more follow through. But the, but the reown at some point, um, yeah, it's, there's an opportunity in here, but just not at this point. So. Not at this point. And really to make that opportunity present, are, are we going to have to see perhaps a slowdown in exports to get the board to back off before you'd feel really comfortable stepping in and, and reowning some bean bushels? Um, you know, there's there's going to be a, it's the market's extremely long at this point in soybeans. So I mean, everyone's kind of expecting that you know where's that next oomph going to get from uh, that's going to push us higher, and maybe it's going to be meal. Um, there's going to be a transition here. We've got a little bit of weather premium. I mean, everyone knows that that the, the soybean plantings in Brazil are delayed. Um, you know, you've got a record book on here from the Chinese on exports. It's all about fulfilling the exports at this point and, and making sure beans move to the river and to the export channels. Um, but I also think the end users are concerned that you know if the if you don't get the ownership now, um, they're really going to have to either bid up for basis later in the year, um, or you know the board's going to have to do a rally in order to originate beans you know once the farmers lock the bin doors gotcha well uh, another commodity that is seeing some interest in getting it secured is wheat this ongoing dryness not just in the central u.s great plains but also across the black sea region it's creating some uh, some excitement in the wheat market which we haven't seen in a while garrett where do you think it goes from here well um you know the market's been able to absorb the, the rally to six dollars fairly well i mean it's it the the wheat market um, is, is entirely led by the black seed wheat in, in Russia, and Russia is the cheapest origin of wheat in the world. Um, so wherever they go, um, we go. And the markets have continued to firm. Uh, we've had headlines this week that, that, that they were looking at potentially a, a, a four to six million metric ton state reserve to help protect their domestic millers. That could potentially take 46 million metric ton of, of wheat off of the uh, off the export market. Um, you know, you've got a fairly decent Australian crop. Uh, the eastern part of the country is wet; the western part is dry. Um, and then the Argentine crop uh, has been, you know, it, it, drought and frost and issues of that mark point. But um, yeah, I mean, I think everything is is 
controlled by inflation and, and, and weather markets, and, and I think we could probably get another, you know, maybe a move to 650 here in beans. All right, something to watch for Garrett Toy from Ag Trader Talk. A chilly morning, my thermometer here in Huntley, Illinois, in the backyard, showing 31 degrees at the moment as the growing season comes to an end in your garden as well as cornfields and soybean fields throughout Illinois and the Midwest. And uh, they're going to have to harvest through some fairly good snows in the northern part of the Midwest after this week's weather has happened. Let me add a little bit more to the story I did on China's agricultural imports. China's government is discussing permits for millions of tons of additional corn imports over the next year. That according to three industry sources uh, who talked to Reuters reporters in China. And uh, the reason for that, there's a surge in animal feed demand. And after storms and drought damage tightened the domestic supplies, but a round of new import Orders from China would make it the world's top importer of corn for the first time and likely drive up global prices of corn and other grains. Food security has emerged as a global theme during the pandemic, exacerbated in China by the African swine fever attack of the past couple of years that devastated the hog herd and left the pork supply tight in China because China is the world's largest pork consumer and the second largest corn consumer. Those are some of the interesting changes taking place in agricultural trade because of unusual situations with attacks from uh, the African swine fever decimating the hog production in China, and they're still working to bring that back to an acceptable level because they are, I've said this many times, they are the world's largest producer of hogs and the largest consumer of pork. As we take a look at the market activity yesterday, According to uh, the Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange, U.S. wheat, soybean, and corn futures all ended the week higher yesterday, and strong export demand continuing to push prices higher, and wheat notched the biggest gains, pushing toward a six-year high on concerns about drought in major production belts of the world, coupled with a flurry of overseas tenders illustrating the robust global demand for wheat. So at the end of the trading day yesterday, the December wheat contract up 11 and three-quarter cents a bushel, ending at $6.34.5. December corn gained three and three-quarter cents a bushel yesterday, ending the week at $4.20. The November soybean contract gained 13 cents for the day yesterday, ending at $10.86 and three-quarter cents a bushel. And the livestock futures at the Mercantile Exchange, 
saw hog futures snapping a three-session losing streak. That's the longest losing streak for December contract in five weeks, and live cattle rebounded from its lowest level since June 29. So not a bad week uh, ending in the marketplace for grain and livestock yesterday. Next week, uh, well, several things happening. The last day of October, those of us who will live in daylight saving time communities will move the clock back one hour. Daylight saving comes to an end, and so make note of that for Halloween night because we will go back the old line, spring forward, you move ahead one hour, fall back, you move back one hour so that your clocks are on time and that you're on time for church and whatever other activities that you have coming up on the 1st of November. As always, we appreciate your time with us here on the Saturday morning show and look forward to uh, summing up the week's agricultural activities as we wind up the week and the month on October 31st. Thank you, and our thanks to uh, Bob Ferguson, the engineer who makes it all happen, and our thanks to you for listening to the Saturday Morning Show.